Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Irina. And this is our review for Memories of Me, starring Billy Crystal, Alan King, and Joe Beth Williams. Directed by Henry Winkler, released in 1988 on a $12 million budget, grossed $3.9 million at the box office. So, Irina, we paired this one with nothing in common because the stories are very similar, and this is the one that you knew the most. And I've got to know, how did you latch into this movie? Um, so, it usually starts out with a story about my parents. Um my dad and I, it was like our big thing to sit down and watch movies together. And this was one of the ones that came up. And it might not have been him who introduced me to it. It might have been my mom. But it was just one that for some reason I was drawn to. And I remember, you know, my parents would be out doing something. It would be one that I just stuck in the the VCR so that I could watch it. It sounds very much like me with nothing in common. Just something <laughs> that I latched on to and couldn't let go of. So um, I, I got to say, though, like Billy Crystal... I've never been a huge fan, but I also don't hate him actively. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't seek out stuff that he's in. But I've seen him in, gosh, probably a dozen movies through the years. And I never find him to be annoying or offensive or anything. He's absolutely fine. He's He was my favorite Oscar host of all of those that they've done. Yeah, you know, you you either love him or he's just kind of, you know, you're lukewarm with him like you are. Uh, and I think the wonderful thing about this movie is he's, this character is very endearing. You end up loving his character in this movie. I think that, and then Alan King was somebody I was familiar with because I saw some of his stand-up specials on like Showtime or something. We'd have the free weekends and stuff growing up. And then I saw him in a, you know, a lot of movies and things. And then I think every 80s kid had sort of a secret crush on Jo Beth Williams because she was the super hot mom from Poltergeist and also like the super protective mom that would literally go to hell and back to get you out of the you know netherworld. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you've got a fun cast here. you got Henry Winkler, the Vons, who's an acclaimed actor in his own right and was a good director, too. It was really getting into directing at this point. You've got everything to make this work. Why did this one flop at the box office? I think it was too real. Um, I think we can do, uh, anybody can do a movie that's a realistic movie about a real story, a true story, pardon me. But this one kind of hits home in a way that you don't want it to, in an uncomfortable way, but resolves itself. Yeah, it is a very contained story. It's a very simple one. I mean, there's a lot of people in this movie, but it's really about the three of these people. And honestly, it's Billy Crystal and Alan King doing what a lot of times to me feels like a play. It was both of those guys are big stage actors and they wrote a lot of plays together and they they worked on this together. It was a passion project for both. And this feels a lot like it could be, you know, a, a good play, at least from, you know, from the untrained eye. You're the professional theater person on the show. <laughs> You're so sweet, professional. Um, I mean, the pairing of them together, the camaraderie that they develop is really great. And I do, um, if I remember some articles that I've read, Billy Crystal learned a lot from Alan King throughout this production. Um, this was a growth piece for Billy Crystal in, in a way that other pieces weren't. Yeah, I do think it allowed him to really stretch because he didn't have to totally carry the comedy in the film or the drama because Alan King is just as capable of doing it. And let's face it, so is Joe Beth Williams. So it was an interesting pairing. It's not one I had ever seen. I would have never known this existed if you had not brought it to you know the forefront here. So it was a fun watch, and I'm curious to get into it. And I guess before we go any further, it's time to give folks a plot summary. So I'm going to let you do that this time, Irina. Tell folks what Memories of Me is about. <laughs> Dr. Abby Poland never really knew his father. He spent time with him here and there as he chased dreams in Hollywood and became dubbed the king of the extras. But largely, Abby grew up on his own, not close to either of his parents. It didn't stop him from becoming a successful, albeit overworked surgeon in New York. Um, Abby's performing surgery when he has a heart attack from 
stressing himself out and while recovering, his doctor pal and sometimes girlfriend, Lisa, convinces him to reconnect with his father in Los Angeles. Abby arrives and the same old tensions flare between the two. Lisa arrives as a surprise to Abby and meets the charming Abe, Abby's father, while encouraging Abby to try and get to know his father. Eventually, the two hash out all their frustrations but come to understand and know each other. Abby and Lisa both notice Abe occasionally has spells where he recites old dialogue or gets lost in his past and past and loses his place. Um, and Abby takes his father to the hospital and upon observation and some testing learns his father has an aneurysm on a part of his brain that cannot be reached with surgery. Knowing his time is limited, Abby spends as much time as he can with Abe, even posing as an agent to get him a speaking part in a movie. But the night before his big part, Abe passes away in his sleep. Heartbroken but thankful for knowing his father, Abby, along with Lisa, bury Abe in L.A. and see a chorus of extras Abe often mentored and worked with, still dressed in costume from the day's work, arriving at the gravesite to pay respects to the king of the extras. So that's a good plot summary, Irina, and I think it tells the story here. And It's a very self-contained one, like we said, but it's also very real is the word you used. And I like that because... That was one of the things I really enjoyed about Nothing in Common was I thought David Basner's relationship to his parents in that movie was very real in a lot of ways and dealt with a lot of very real issues. And this one is a little simpler even because it's just a father and a son, and it's really a son that only grew up kind of tertiarily even knowing who his father was. Oh, absolutely. Um I guess one of the things that that drew me to it more more than it being real was that there's a real character arc for Abby. Um, you know, he goes from the angry son to a completely different character at the end of the movie, which is and it's a beautiful transition. Yeah, and let's talk about how we meet him. You know, we, we're sort of scanning across this hospital, and I did not know. Billy Crystal could play the trumpet like this. Oh, I he can't. He, I thought he was. Gosh, that's a heck of a pantomime job. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> and being a musician who plays the trumpet, I know 100% he did not play the trumpet because of the, the next scene that he plays the trumpet in. Because I watched his fingerings, and even as a kid, I was like, that's, that's not what that's supposed to oh, We'll let it go. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, that's great, though. But I, see, that's like the second time I've seen in a movie where somebody has pulled that off, and I believed it because... For years, I thought Ralph Macchio really knew how to play the guitar in Crossroads, and he didn't know Jack. He just learned how to like finger pantomime along to what he thought Steve Vai was doing, and it looked real enough that they were like, well, hey, we don't have to cut away from the kid. It looks all right. And for years, before I learned how to play guitar, I thought that's how that is supposed to look. And yeah, it's funny. No, not at all. It's funny how actors are able to do that. I'll say with the trumpet, you got three keys. You can't just one, two, three them. You have to do a combination of keys. So right. w watching it now as an adult, it's even more amusing for me. But, you know, we do come across him, you know, sitting. I think he's sitting in the morgue playing his trumpet because it's his quiet place. And that's, you know, his personal therapy is playing his trumpet. And, you know, he's called into the OR. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll reveal it throughout the movie or whatever. But he had a rather traumatic performance experience playing the trumpet, but he never gave it up. And that's another way he and his father reconnect later on. But yeah, it's, it's the thing you always see in movies and TV that the ER doctor or the emergency surgeon or whatever is just sort of hanging around waiting for, you know, all hell to break loose. And he gets called in to perform a surgery. And so we go right into the wing. And I knew immediately when he started laying out symptoms about heart palpitations, there's problems. And the, the anesthesiologist is like, she's, she's fine, doc. What are you talking about? And I'm like, no, he's sweating profusely. This man is about to have a heart attack. Yeah. And, you know, Billy Crystal did a really great job in that moment portraying somebody going through all these changes, but trying to keep his his craft together while he's in the middle, you know, he's got his hands on somebody's heart <laughs> trying to get through the, you know, that he's having a heart attack and making sure his patient's safe. And then, you know, down he goes. Yeah. I know. I love how it, like he's giving instructions to the nurse about here's what you need to do for me. Here's how to handle this. And I'm like, man, what we're seeing is a character and a person who has a lot of control or at least feels like he's got a lot of control over his life. Right. Because he grew up with a childhood where he didn't have a ton of control over what was going on. 
Right. He's, he's, he's become hyper-focused on being in control of every aspect of his life, despite the fact that this moment, you know, he can't control, which then leads him to go into the dreams about his dad as he's having the heart attack. Right. And I, that really, I didn't expect that at that point. It's, this is not the kind of movie I thought would have dream sequences in it, honestly. And when it went there, I thought, okay, this is a very abrupt opening to this movie. And I'm not dinging it for that. I'm just saying it wasn't what I expected because, you know, nothing in common. You've got all this like cool eighties music and you've got the goofy Tom Hanks doing his riffing thing. And we're sort of seeing Chicago. And this movie is not like that at all. We go up a street into a hospital and a doctor's having a heart attack while, you know, performing surgery. Well, you know, the beauty of him going to that place with his dad is it's a memory of his father reading him a book as he goes to bed at night, which mm -hmm. was the nighttime book that his dad always read him. And here he is having a heart attack. He doesn't know whether he's going to live. So for him to jump back, the flashback to be the comfort of the father reading him a good night story, it's almost like he's expecting death instead of survival and trying to calm himself down. And maybe, you know, we all have little things that help calm us down when we are anxious or upset. And maybe that's his one thing that he always goes back to. It could be. And the riff of it is it's not his dad actually reading the book. It's his dad kind of riffing off of what the book should be. Right. You know, right. And, sweet and, dreams to my fingers, sweet dreams to my knees, sweet dreams to the belly buttons that go in and out. And, and you know, he, yeah. he continues to go on that and make his, the kid's favorite book somewhat of a comedy because he really doesn't want to read the book to his kid. Yeah, like I catch myself when my nieces and nephews were younger and I would read to them. I would do the same kind of goofy set of voices my dad used to do when he would read his children's books. That was the best part about my dad reading to us is he would do the voices or what yeah. he thought the voices were of the Muppets or whatever the heck he was reading us. And I, I caught myself doing that once and was like, wow, I've, I've become my father, you know, even though I don't have kids. And I thought of that watching the scene. I was like, oh, it's, you, you just want to know what you know. Yeah, yeah, 100%. My mom has books that she she used to read to me in a French accent. So, you know, we all, we all go back to them. Even I read to my kids that way. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a comfort for him. Yeah, and that's the thing you've got to understand, I think, about Abby, is that he is so obsessed with he wants to be comfortable in his own life, but he's anything but. I mean, he is so stressed out that, again, he gives himself a heart attack. He's 38 years old. In this movie, we're supposed to be in, in his late 30s. And he's so on the edge that he can't let go of all the stuff that he's obsessed about to try and be relaxed, even though he's most obsessed with being relaxed and being comfortable. Well, you know, I think some of that uh, need for control and obsession is a distraction from, you know, the family life that he or the lack of family life that he hasn't addressed with either of his parents. Yeah, and that's the thing about this is we only hear like talk of the mother from our two Your characters. Mother. Yeah, we we don't we don't even meet her, right? We don't even see her. No, we never even see a picture of her. And throughout the movie, Abe refers to her as your so-called mother. Like, what did your so-called mother say about me? Is that what your so-called mother told you? I know. So I mean, what a joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's obvious that there's no love between Abe and his ex-wife. And, um, I mean, one of the hardest parts in this is Abby stands up and says, well, you left us and we don't ever get any resolution to that, but I don't think we need to. Um, and I, I, I do love that Abby begins to reflect his father in some ways with his sense of humor when he's discharged from the hospital. Yeah. He's very self-deprecating. And I think that's something that just Billy Crystal does. He just <laughs> kind of picks on himself and he just, you know, he, he's sort of a, half wink at himself all the time. He doesn't take himself too seriously. That's part of his charm. Oh yeah. 100%. And you know, the, the charming thing here is he's walking here. He's not even, well, he's wheeled to the door and insists that he's going to walk because there's his control thing. And she's just trying to be there for him, trying to help him. And, and he dismisses it. And I'm going to lean on you. You're going to lean on me. We're a semicolon walking home. So yeah, no, no, no. He, mm -hmm. He's constantly trying to make everything fun instead of really getting down to the nitty gritty personal aspects of his life. Right. He uses the humor as a mask for not dealing with the moment. And even Lisa calls him out on the Joe Beth Williams. I mean, that's the thing that we like about her is 
just like Nothing in Common's female character, she's very strong. She sort of has her own agency and everything like that. But she very much is a help and a friend to this guy, even though they kind of had an on and off relationship. At least that's the way I saw it. She still very much cares about him, but she's also not going to put up with his garbage either. Yeah, no, she's not going to put up with any crap from him because she's clinically trained to deal with people who are going to try to BS her every day. Because let's face it, kids, they, they don't always come out and say exactly what they're feeling. And I think that's one of the things that draws her to Abby is he does have that childlike behavior. Very much. I mean, yeah, they said that she's a pediatrician in the film. And yeah, you can see how that bleeds over. I, again, I think Joe Bell Williams is an underappreciated actress. I mean, she always brings a lot to every role she's in. She totally disappears inside of every role, whether she's playing against suburban housewife or she's playing FBI agent or now pediatrician or whatever. I just kind of buy her as this really intelligent, got it together, strong woman who is the rock that the men in her life lean on. That seemed to be her typecast role forever. She was always the strong woman opposite the man that was either too stupid to know he needed help or too goofy to deal with it or totally falling apart. Well, more power to her. (laughs) Um, No, but she is great in this part. She's very, very genuine, which I appreciate. Um, As you said, there's no question here. She does throw herself into this role entirely. And and she's very believable. And I think that works to balance out Billy Crystal's goofiness, but at the same time um, makes him even more lovable and believable. And I I never thought I would say that Billy Crystal was lovable, but he's lovable in this movie. He kind of is. And she is shocked to learn that his father's even alive. You know, she's like, you told me he was dead. No, I didn't. I just didn't tell you who he was or that he was alive. And, yeah, 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 and I love that she calls him out on the fact that, like, you know, you can be a really affectionate person, but you can't relate to people at all, and that's why we didn't work as a relationship. It's why you have all this pent up stress because look, Billy Crystal doesn't look like you know candidate for a heart attack. He's in decent shape, you know, whatever, and he, you know, he kills over because of the stress, the anxiety. Yeah, he does. Um, he, he stresses himself out, but you know he's creating a life that's a lie. In 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 effect, to her saying, you know, every time I ask you about him, you'd shrug. You know, and he had said he's not dead. Last time I checked on, he was alive. But he he hasn't come through with really answering the question. He's just kind of given it a shrug off because he doesn't really want to deal with it. And he asks her point blank. Why, why, why do you put up with me? And, you know, she says, I guess when you find a decent, witty, straight turtle with great potential and a truly fine ass, you do everything to make it work. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would use any of those words to describe uh, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal but... <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. But she, she does say, but I'll tell you, it's really tr- tiring trying to do it alone. You know, so she's, she's feeling like she's working at this and giving to him, giving to him. And, you know, that's why their relationship is up and down and up and down. And it's more of a casual relationship until we kind of get into everything else here when Abby goes to see his father. Yeah. And and she's the one that really encourages him. You should go to LA, see your dad, get, you know, get to know him, talk to him again. And what we see is that Abe is very much comfortable in his element in, in LA. And like it, it comes together over a number of scenes, but you get the sense that he as the, I guess, veteran extra, and all these different shows and films and stuff like that kind of guides all these young aspiring actors and actresses in LA on how to work the system, how to make sure you, you get called back to be the corpse the next week on the, you know, the hospital show or whatever. And he has, a, he has his whole thing going and everything to him is an act. It's a play. It's a riff. It's, it's fun. And much like his son, he uses that humor to really hide his own emotions and maybe his own emotional instability. Yeah, you know, and so I was doing some reading in the process of, you know, kind of getting ready to to do this episode with you. And I read a great quote from Roger Ebert that about Abe. He slaps you on the back so he doesn't have to look you in the eye. He's encouraging everybody. He's being the supportive guy. He's being everybody else's father because he doesn't want to reflect on what he wasn't for, what his father wasn't for him, what he wasn't for his son. Um, so, we say this is a very simple story, but the characters are still complex. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they have a lot of complex emotions. And whereas 
you know, the last movie, again, I hate to keep referring back to it, but it, it definitely worked from being a comedy into a drama and was very much more of a drama, I think, than a, than a comedy. This movie is very much a comedy that has a lot of dramatic elements to it. And no, no better scene to exemplify that than when Abby finally tells his father, I had a heart attack, and his dad so can't deal with that to the fact that he goes and calls the bar that they're hanging out at on another phone and wants to have that conversation over the telephone. Like, can't have it in person, but he's, he's, you're embarrassing me in front of my friends. Yep, yep. My heart attack embarrassed you. You know, and Abby's absolutely appalled. He doesn't get it. You know, he, I guess for Abby, because he's been living, well, actually for Abe and Abby, they've both been living two separate lives. Um, it's been five years since they've seen each other. You know, and they, there's no connection. So one of the quotes that we one of the things that we hear from Abe throughout this movie, whenever Abby doesn't want to actually like answer a question or do something that Abe is asking him to do, he'll say, I'm your father and I'm asking. And yeah. I think at that moment, it's Abe reminding him, wait, this is who we are. It's been five years, but we're still this. We still have this, this genetic tie. Yeah, we have this thing, but we don't have a relationship. At mm-hmm. all. And, yes, and, and they, I mean, they never had one. Like you would learn later on that uh, Abby as a kid would go on a train to see his father. He would be there for a couple of days. His bo- father would sit him back on the train and would like pay the porter to spend time with him. And he said, I still talk to that guy every day. You know, it's kind of a joke, right? It's like, I yeah. knew the people that were helping me shuttle out of your life more than I even knew you. Yeah, and and, <laughs> and he even says to he he tells Abby, you know, I said to the porter, don't let him get off the train until he gets to New York because he did. I mean, and that and that's the moment that we realize that Abe, even though Abe kind of shipped him back because he didn't know how to communicate with him, um, and he really enjoyed living his life as a pseudo actor. I'm not going to call him a straight actor, um, which we'll get to that later too, but. Um, you know, he's so obsessed with living this life that he pushes his son away and sends him back home, but wants to make sure that he's going to be safe, even though he's traveling alone. And then, and then he's dismissed him. Well, you get a sense that, like, he's not terribly interested in being a father any more than he was in being a husband. But he's not a cold, evil person either. So he's trying to do what sort of makes him feel like I'm doing what's right, but it lets him off the hook. But he, again, is not emotionally invested in his own son. And that's a sad thing to see. Again, you know, it's and especially against you've got two very affable actors here. And when you meet them in both of their situations, they're adorable. You just want to like them. And you want to like Abe. But on the other hand, you realize, like, this guy's this guy's a jerk. Yeah. They both have their jerk moments, don't they? <laughs> Big time. <laughs> you know, at one point, uh, Lisa, the Joe Beth Williams character, she actually, after Abby said he's a kid and he's scared, she says, do you want a mirror? <laughs> there are moments here in this uh, in this movie where Lisa does remind Abby of the similarities between he and his father. Once, Of course, once she arrives in L.A. and meets him. Yeah, and that's the thing is when she arrives, it's a big surprise and I didn't get the sense Abby really was happy to see her there. Did you get that? Um, he was surprised. I don't know whether she. Well, so she she shows up. <laughs> she shows up at the door with like a singing telegram. Right. And a little dance. And I, I love her for it because she's giggling the whole time. She knows how absolutely ridiculous she is with her hands up in the air doing her little. Da, 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 da. I, <laughs> He's just confused. Yeah, and well, it's it's the thing is is I think her entire lot at this point in life is to try to get this dude to lighten the hell up, and nothing is working. So if we can't get a singing telegram with a ninety dollar jam box from the nineteen eighties to do it for you, I don't know what will. And oh, no. this is I gotta say about this woman though, like seriously, she is one of the most long suffering characters I've ever seen. She's very much like the Donna character in Nothing in Common. Like, she sort of has her own world, but she's also very much invested in this dude, and she will not give up. And I think that's important because Abby and Abe, at one time or another, basically gave up on each other. It's obvious that Abe and Abby don't have any relationship with each other. I mean, they haven't seen each other in five years, right? 
And Lisa very much seems to be invested in the idea that, no, you need to have a relationship with your father. You need this in your life because if nothing more, it'll give you some closure because clearly this is a thing that looms over you. But yeah. And, um, you know, her arrival kind of, she's a crutch almost um, at this point. She, she's a, she's a crutch, but she's also supportive of him and trying to guide him to, to fix the relationship and sometimes not in the right way. Um, but she does try to play Switzerland uh, 90% of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And even when they go to the set to visit Abe, who I got to say, Alan King is hilarious. Up as like a live lobster. I don't know what, like they're in some sort of like C-roll horror movie or something. That oh, was God. funny. Like yeah, please, please scratch the shell right behind the ear. You know, like that was funny. Okay. Yeah, I mean he's he's great in that scene, and but we we kind of have to go back to uh, the first time we see Abe on set for anything is he's playing um, a man who's in a coma, and um, he's he's unable to kind of keep his his cool. He's breaking character constantly, which isn't his thing. You know, he's always claimed that he's a professional extra. You know, this is his thing. He's the king of the extras. And yet he's still unable to maintain character, which kind of sets the tone for where we go further, especially when we get to the scene where he is a lobster and we see all these other vegetables and other, you know, seafood around him. But anyway, so he's, he's, he's this red lobster in this big rubber suit and they go to shoot this scene and everybody's just kind of watching. And, and this is the first time we really see Abe break. Yeah. Um, he has no clue where he is. He's completely lost himself. And he reverts back to a quote uh, from a play that he did a million years ago that he was an extra in. Um, yeah, isn't that like a Robert E. Lee quote or something too? Which yeah, is a strange a- thing for a, a, a New York Jew who living in LA to quote Robert E. Lee. By the way, I was really like prone by all of that. One of the one of the beautiful things, and I he I think he says it's from Inherit. Yeah, so it is from Inherit the Wind. The beauty of it is something that is reflected in Abe. Um, it's the loneliest feeling in the world to find yourself standing up when everyone else is sitting down. To have everybody look at you and say, "What's the matter with him?" I know, I know what it feels like walking down an empty street, listening to the sound of your own footsteps. Shutters closed, blinds drawn, doors locked against you. And you aren't sure whether you're walking towards something or if you're just walking away. And the importance of that is he's been walking away for years, but towards something at the same time. He's walking away from his family while he's walking towards his dream. And there have been doors shut against him. He has been the only man walking through this world that he hasn't had anybody by his side. He never mentions a new wife or anything. Um, He's just been this guy alone with, with his friends who, you know, we didn't, we're not even really sure throughout this, whether they're friends that he could call on in an emergency or whether they're just acquaintances. We don't get the feeling here that anybody really knows Abe. Right, because he keeps everyone just at that arm's distance. Like you said for that Ebert quote, he, he slaps people on the back so he doesn't have to look them in the eye. He doesn't make connections with people, but he wants people to feel like they're cared about, they're taken care of, but not in any seriously intimate way. You know, he's just there again trying to chase this. I think he gave up on the idea of actually being a professional actor years ago, and he just sort of realized, I can carve a life out of just being the guy in the background, the face in the crowd. Right? I'm going to disagree with you 100% on that. I think he's scared. I think that Abe is afraid because that means he would actually succeed at something. And when Abe talks about his his family life and how difficult his dad had it, you know, he'll talk about how his dad worked you know, all day in a factory and all he wanted was a sewing machine sitting in front of his window. I think there's a moment here where we realize that Abe, you know, that he wants to be that actor. I don't know whether he wants to outdo his dad and actually attain his dream. I think that the, I mean, in humanity, we're all kind of afraid of getting there at some point because where do we go from there? Um, So if he's always playing an extra, there's always a character to play. There's always somebody he can disappear into um, where he doesn't have to, you know, face the reality. Whereas like a main character with lines for Abe would mean, Hey, you actually have to become this person and face reality. You don't just get to be a face in the crowd. That's an interesting take. I hadn't thought about it like that, but uh, very insightful. And 
not something I read into, but I guess on subsequent views, I might catch that. Just my reading of it was, again, he just kept everything at arm's length because that was easier. And then he realized that that would work for him because like, honestly, like in another you know vein, this guy is a straight hustler. Like he's just getting by. And the one thing we know about hustlers is hustlers survive. They do. They just okay. find a way to get through. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, 100%. And um, I think that kind of brings us to a moment where Abby and, and Abe, where, where are they? Are they Grauman's Chinese theater? Yeah. They're right in front of, yeah, they don't call it out. It's that, but it says Grauman's Chinese theater. Yeah. 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 It totally is. So, you know, they're, they're playing this little game where they jump from person from like cement square to cement square. And, you know, Abe looks at Abby. He's like, they moved this. And he's like, what? He's like, they moved Jimmy Stewart. And we're like, wait, what? And then Abby comes in and says, no, we always played it this way. And it, and it, I think that they're playing hopscotch with the squares. I really think that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, as I sat back and watched, I was like, oh, they're playing hopscotch. Um, <laughs> they're not throwing a stone, but they're playing hopscotch. But yet, so th- we get another memory lapse here. Yeah. Um, we, it's another clue that something is wrong. Right? Yeah. It's another clue that something is wrong. And then there's a car accident, which Abby jumps in to help. And I, I couldn't help but notice when I rewatched it this time that Abe becomes a face in the crowd again. He moves everybody away from his son who is helping out with this car accident, helping this car accident victim to be comforted, to make sure he's safe until the EMTs get there. And at one point we see Abby look up at Abe and say, you're in my light. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment where we have the son outdo the father. Whereas with Abe, he's held himself back. And this is kind of why I said, you know, Abe doesn't want to outdo his dad. This is where Abby outdoes his father. He's taking his light. He's taking his spotlight and it's his turn. And I think after that, we get what is the best, most dramatic scene in the movie because they have the absolute knockdown drag out in the car ride afterward. They get out of the car. They raise fists at each other. They never actually ever come to blows but they finally both drop all the pretension and unload all of their 38 years of stuff on each other. And uh, it, it's, it's sad and it's poignant, but on the other hand, you know, putting on my counselor head here, I'm like, yes, this is good. We need to do this, do more of this. Oh yeah. Everybody needs that one moment where every, you know, in any relationship where you finally blow up and say, okay, this is where we are. This is what this is. And he says to him, then, you know, Abby asks, or pardon me, Abe asks Abby, what do you want from me? He says, I want your love. And then that's what triggers Abe to get out of the car. He's like, you want love? Come see me more than every five years. Yeah, it's it's on both feet, right? Like, that's the thing is this movie so delicately balances who's at fault. They both are. And that's hard to do. It really is because at some point the audience needs to take a side or you, you know, most writers would have the audience pick a side. And in here they do a great job and Billy Crystal and his crew do a great job of balancing out that. Yeah. You know what? They're both right. And they're both wrong at the same time. I think one of the beautiful things that happens as they're about to come to fisticuffs is you can see the tears pooling in Billy Crystal's eyes. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't, want to be in this place with his dad. And, you know, we forgot to mention there, it's not like they're out in the middle of the street. They're, they're in a tunnel. They're in a tunnel. So you get that, that echoes of them screaming at each other, but that combined with just the look of absolute uh, disappointment, sadness on Abe's face, you know, Billy Crystal hits it home with this. He does, but there's also something else visually about that, that I really love. And Henry Winkler really deserves credit for setting the shot up in that setting. What's going on while they're doing that? The cars are just driving on by. So no matter how much your own personal drama completely roadblocks your own life, there's a there's a calming and a, I don't know, I guess a, a maturing realization to realize that while you're stuck in all of this, everything around you is still going on. That it's not all revolving around you. In fact, it's going right by you. And if you keep on with this, you're either going to get run over or it's going to pass you by. And yeah, that's it's... that's what we're seeing here. And I, I love that shot and the way that was set up because that is total visual storytelling. And that is so smart. And you don't see that anymore in films nowadays. People don't take time to do that kind of stuff. That is great visual storytelling. 
Yeah, it is great visual storytelling. And one of the things you said when we started was it kind of felt like you were watching a play. So if we think back to, you know, Henry Winkler's, you know, the beginning is beginnings of his career, there's live audiences, correct? Yeah, absolutely. He's working in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. yeah, so he was working in front of a live studio audience, so that's what he knows. So I think that's why we get a taste of some of this, the the more personalized and the more, like, play aspect of it. And, and I, as an actor, as a director, I can 100% see where you came from with feeling like this was in a play, and especially in the scene, because you can see the characters <laughs> rotating around each other. And I've done that in Bluffing before, and it's, bluffing before, and it's so effective. Um, no, it's a great, it's a great way to tell to tell story and have movement while you're spitting out a lot of dialogue. But again, just the whole set, that whole bit. Again, that's the best scene in the movie for me because it, it's really a turning point in everything too. It's when everything really shifts. Like I, I've talked about this being a play. You've also got two actors that are very experienced on plays and playwrights and things like that. But it, it's really you know plays are generally act one and act two, right? Movies tend to be three acts. This movie really works in two acts in a lot of ways. And this is the, the turning point. This would be the end of Act 1, and then we get into Act 2, where they finally have had it all out, right? And I, I love this, though. Abby goes back to see Lisa at, it, at her hotel or whatever, and you don't see adult love scenes that don't get, like, really cheesy or more, I don't know, how am I trying to say this, ridiculously erotic for no reason whatsoever. You don't see adults go at each other the way that he and Joe Beth Williams do in movies anymore. And there was something so subtle and sweet about all of it. And I never thought I would think of Billy Crystal as a love scene guy, but it's actually a really good love scene. It's much better than Tom Hanks and Celia Ward making out after the horses. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 10 times better than them making out after the horses. I think um, this, this scene is wonderful because it's, it's true. Um, he's emotionally distraught and he says to her, just hold me. I don't want to talk. Just hold me. And we've all been in those vulnerable situations um, where we really have just needed a hug. And sure, this is a, a situation that turns into a love, a, a love scene. Um, and I got to say it. I never thought I'd say that Billy Crystal was sexy, but this, this scene is just so true to life that it's perfect. Well, you know what makes it work is that neither one of them are dressed in their sexy clothes. She's in like a torn up t-shirt eating ice cream on the bed. And he rolls in after his blood on his shirt from having saved, you know, worked on a guy that was in a car wreck and he's kind of beat up and he's emotionally beat up. And I mean, it's just like in a long day, right? And they look like normal people. That's again, something you don't see anymore. And I, I appreciated this movie for including that and going there. Cause a lot of times love scenes in movies are completely gratuitous and just ridiculous. This one though felt very earned and very sweet much like a lot of the rest of the film. Yeah, um, it, it did. And um, it was genuine. I mean, it, this is this is how couples work. And we don't see that anymore. We don't see couples just being supportive of one another. And I think this is one of very few movies that actually just shows that emotional support of one another. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is, this is the turning point in the film, right? Because now they've said it all. Abby still wants to try to talk to his father, but he's going to go back to New York with Lisa. But Abe shows up kind of hanging outside their hotel in the not you know useful swimming pool and says, well, hold on a minute. Let's go get some tacos. It's 10 yeah. in the morning, right? So before we get to the pool, let's go back to a moment where um, we lose Lisa. So before they have their big blowout fight, we actually lose Lisa. They're all having a sandwich on the car. And Abby and Abe, well, particularly Abe, shares a story uh, where he embarrassed his son. And then Abby strikes back with some other story to embarrass his father. And she says, you know what? I'm done. And she walks away. And Abby approaches her and says, no, no, no. Lisa, stay. What am I going to do without you? Um, and she says to him, you know, I know he's a tough case but you've never given up on one yet. So we have the trigger to the turning point. We have the trigger where Abby says, wait a second, I'm a doctor. He puts on some of his doctor hat after they have this fight. And that's where mm -hmm. we get into act two. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and it's a great setup for what happens next because Abe intervenes and won't let him go. And they crash 
Is this a bar mitzvah at a Mexican restaurant? I don't know what's happening here. I'm a little. No, 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 no. So it's not a bar mitzvah at a Mexican restaurant. What happens is that they go to the Mexican restaurant and Abe flips. Abe loses track of where he is. He checks out and he literally looks at him and touches Abby and says, don't forget to get the checks. And you see him flip. He goes from being happy and go lucky to very serious about make sure you get the checks. And I'm happy I live to see your bar mitzvah. Mm. He's flipped. And now we have Abe looking at Abby as if he's, you know, 13 year old Abby and not the adult that we've seen through the entire thing. So this is another, another moment of Abe's illness that kind of shows us, Oh wait, he, he's not really there. Yeah, and oh, this is when we get Abby as now. I, now you've killed it for me. It's fake trumpet playing. I thought it was real, uh, oh, but, but but we get we get Alan King and Billy Crystal doing their impressions and having a lot of fun. But you're right, Abe has the other episode, and that's when Abby decides I've got to really put on the doctor hat here. Like it's time for me to use my talents to help my father. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I thought that was a big moment, especially after again the knockdown dragout they had had. 24 hours prior and you brought up a great point i think it's lisa that really pushes him into the you need to use what you have to try to fix this yeah use your tools to fix it and yeah so he has you know his episode as a lobster which we just attribute to him being overheated from being in a rubber suit and then we have this episode where he's like oh hey it's your bar mitzvah and which Abby, to his credit, turns into an enjoyable occasion for everybody he turns it into a party that everybody can have fun at and who cares whether his trumpet playing is not real? That trumpet sounds amazing, and it was fun, and there's nothing like a Mexican habanavila. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when it, Abby, again, always goes back to that Robert E. Lee quote, and he loses himself as everybody's doing impersonations going up the stairs. And Lisa, she says, oh, wait, 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 what's that one? Oh, I know that one. And Abby turns to her and says, he's not playing the game. Wow, yeah, because they're doing the impressions, and he, he gets lost in it again. And that's when he calls on the old friend. He takes him to the medical center. And this was the thing that I, I appreciated about the movie is they let Billy Crystal really do what a doctor would do. He goes very scientific, and he tries to be very diagnostic. But in the middle of it, he can't contain himself talking about you have an aneurysm. And he's trying to explain it to him in a way that, somebody who doesn't have medical training would understand what that was. And I'd never heard it said like before that it was a great uh, example. It's a blister on a blood vessel in your brain and a part that we can't operate on. And I thought, wow, what a, what a thing to have to say to somebody much less to have to say to your own father. Yeah. I like the way they broke this down because not only do they let Billy Crystal's character kind of take over and, you know, be the one to deliver the diagnosis, but they also give us little moments where we realize how troubled Abby is by this diagnosis. So first um, we get Abby who's, you know, he's doing the doctor thing. He's putting on his happy hat and everything's going to be okay. Doing his physical, taking a urine sample, which is hilarious. Probably one of my favorite father son moments, you know, I can't perform like this. Okay. Turn on the water. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the things that happens is when Abby dismisses Abe or releases him from the hospital and says, Hey, I'm going to wait for the results. Abe specifically says, I want this type of sandwich. I want this type of sandwich. And they repeat it multiple times because the point is when Abby gets back to the house, he's gotten the wrong kind of sandwich. So that shows us, and Abby doesn't forget much of anything that shows us how distraught he is by finding out about his father's aneurysm and feeling so helpless because he knows that he can't fix him. Right. And the thing that really struck me is Abe, kind of takes all that news really well, like in stride. I mean, it's maybe again, it's that defense mechanism that he has. But at this point, I feel like they're kind of genuinely relating to each other. And he's like, well, that's how it goes. Well, I think that's part of, um, that's part of Abe's charm. He's dismissing it. He's dismissing it. And, um, you know, he makes some jokes about it, but you do see, you do see his character go through this internal struggle as he walks away instead of sitting up with his son and he doesn't even take a bite of his sandwich. He walks away and we see Abby watching his father in his bedroom on the other side of the house, Abby with tears streaming down his face and his father just looking lost. 
Yeah, because he um, doesn't know. I mean, again, he doesn't know. And I literally have this whole thing about like, well, I want you to go because you. I, I'm just a ticking clock. Is there you sit here and he's like, I think Billy Crystal has like the best line. He's like, I, I've just gotten to know you after all these years. You think I'm going to leave now? No way. Yeah, so my silly face is over here crying because when he does talk to his father about the diagnosis and Abe goes to walk away, he just says dad with a question mark. And this is the yeah. first time through the entire movie that we hear him call him dad. He's always called him Abe. He's always called him by his first name. And again, that's that distance. And now, now his father is real. His father is there, a living person, but also with the medical diagnosis because of who Abby is, there's this reality that sets in that this is it. This is his last time to spend with his dad. Exactly. And so they make the most of the time. I mean, I love how we go through the bucket list. Like we get to go to a petting zoo and ride a pony. We feed a goat. We're fishing. <laughs> kind of doing all the stuff, I guess. Let's be clear about whose bucket list this is. Because, <laughs> you know, we say bucket list and we think, so I'm such a sap. Everybody's going to be happy that I'm crying here. Um, <laughs> the bucket list isn't Abe's bucket list. This is Abby's bucket list. Yeah. Abby wants to have daddy time. So, yeah. you know, they go to a petting zoo. They ride on a pony. You know, as you said, they they, they do the fishing stuff. And, and <laughs> you know, they break it up with great humor. I love Alan King. And Billy Crystal sitting there like, why haven't I caught any fish? And everybody else has caught fish. <laughs> and Billy Crystal walks away frustrated that he hasn't caught any fish. And we, we have Alan King just turn to Joe Beth Williams and say, I didn't put any bait on his hook. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who grew up fishing with my dad, I cannot tell you how many times he pulled that on me as a kid. So hey, you mean, know what? Like, at least your dad had that. My dad was a fly fisherman. <laughs> I knew if there wasn't a fly on the end of that. Well, I figured out real quick how to bait my own hook. And then that, that eliminated that joke, but it was a lot of fun. And I think you made a great point though. It's Abby's bucket list, which is a real twist, right? Because in any other movie, this would be all about all the goofy stuff Abe wants to do. And he's like, no, I want to do stuff that we didn't get to do when I was growing up, when I would come out here for two days and you put me back on the train. Well, you know, the wonderful thing is, is that we see Abe go along with it and enjoy being a father for the first time. Right. Right. It's very... it's, I don't know, it's just really sweet. And then Lisa's got to go back to New York because unlike most Hollywood movies, doctors just can't take off for a month at a time. Like she, she had about <laughs> right. four days of PTO. It was like, okay, I got to like go back now because they need me. And I, I love how Joe Beth Williams says goodbye to him because I think she knows like this is it. Yep, 100%. She knows this is the last time she's going to see this man. And we see it all over her face. And Alan King and Billy Crystal do such, they are paired so well together in this and then add her to it. It's just a perfect balance. And her, the way she, as you said, you know, her goodbye to, to Abe, it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's, it really is. It really is. And we see that kind of the last thing Abby wants to do for his father is, I want to get you a speaking part in a movie, in a show. There's got, how does this work? You know? And so they go through the whole machinations about you got to have an agent and all this, blah, blah, blah. And I love when Billy Crystal just decides, I'm just going to act like the agent. And for the first time, to see him step in his father's world where he's got to be something he's not to try to get his foot in the door somewhere. Yeah, and it, it and it's so believable. And Abe is even blown away by his son's ability to kind of do this. And here, when he does get the opportunity to audition, this is where we see what I brought up earlier. Abe is scared. Mm-hmm. He's afraid to do this. He's nervous. Um, he goes into this audition, which I love this scene. This might be one of my personal favorite scenes when he goes into this audition with a woman he's never met who's expecting to see somebody younger. Um, not only see somebody younger, but somebody with a lot, you know, less of a sense of humor than Abe has. She says, so tell me about yourself. Well, I'm 22 and la, 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 la. No, really, <laughs> tell me about yourself. Oh, I'm 35, la, la, la. No, tell me about yourself. I'm 63 years old, blah, 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 blah. And, he, you know, when he's like playing the part and having fun with it, saying I'm 22, I'm 35. When he gets to the point where he's 63, he's like, and this sucks. 
and I don't know why I'm here and I'm making a putz of myself and I'm going to get out of get out of here. And one of the big things he always asks um, through the movie, and I think we need to kind of bring it up because we haven't said it yet. He says, don't you feel like a putz? And he says it a couple of times <laughs> through the movie. And, he, and um, So, you know, he's always co- constantly trying to save face, I think. Well, yeah, save face by self-deprecating humor, you know. And look, as somebody who trains students on how to answer the dreaded interview question, tell me about yourself, the thing we try to get them to do is just be yourself and be honest. And don't give people your life story. Tell them who you are and why you're sitting in front of them. But you got to hook yourself into them some way. And I love how, as an actor, like his best way is to, like, let me show you that I can be 22, I can be 35, or I can just be me. You know, like, and he finally is real for like, I don't know, eight seconds with that woman, but it gets him the part. And that's what's funny is he actually did it. And I think you hit on something that I hadn't thought about, but now that you've said it, I'm really sort of remembering the movie differently a little bit is he is blown away by like, holy cow, I actually got it. Wow. What what am I going to do with that? Right. Yeah. And he goes back to the bar and he doesn't want to tell his extra friends and by extra friends, not because he's got you know, a ton of them, but you know, his other extra actors, you know, the people that he's worked with for years and they, he doesn't want to say, he doesn't want to say it. So he goes into this and I I have to mention this song because it cracks me up. He sings too poop to pop. And I think it's a Chuck Berry song or something, Mm -hmm. but so funny because it's about, you know, cooking popcorn. And when I was a kid, I remember thinking it was about eggs. Well, it, it's that. supposed to be about cooking popcorn. If it's a Chuck Berry song, it's about something else. Like, well, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, we, anyway, we know it's about something else, but my point is, is it, it that's his go-to when we first see him, that's what he's singing. And, um, you know, he's just trying to distract with using that and then turns it into a song with I start tomorrow morning at six o'clock. So that then we get the big party for Abe. And that's when Abby surprises him with this extra wonderful thing. Yeah, the wet concrete. It's like, okay, so you want to put your, you know, your feet in the, the cement or whatever. You can get your shot. And what does Alan King do but drop trowel and plant his butt right in the wet concrete? Right. Well, earlier when they are, you know, at Rama's Chinese Theater, he says, Gable's hands, Monroe's feet, and Abe Poland's ass. And, you know, this is the bucket list for Abe. This is Abe's bucket list now. We get Abby's bucket list with his dad, and then we get Abe's bucket list. And, you know, he does. He just drops trowel. He's like, I'm going to get arrested. And Abby says, not if you do it fast enough. And it's great. Um, It's wonderful. Um, well, sweet. We- Again, it's, it's the sweet moment. And I think you said it. it's that's what Abe wants. He wants a speaking part and he wants to be able to do that. It's kind of his way to go out. And that's what makes what happens next. So I, I don't I don't know how to feel about it, honestly, Irina, because part of me is like, I'd love to have seen this guy like get on the set. And if he dropped on the set, like that would have almost been perfect. But it, maybe it's better that he never even makes it to the part. We don't see him die. We don't get some melodramatic scene. We get a a tearful Billy Crystal with his back to the camera, looking out over the California sunset, calling the set and saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Poland won't make it in today. And just well, you know, it up. And even before we get there, we they, they go back to the house and they have a heart-to-heart where they're running lines, trying to get Renault's lines, and Abe's constantly ad-lib- ad-libbing. And he turns to Ebony and says, I want you to go home. He's like, and, and the line that Billy Crystal says, which I find fabulous, is I've known you for 37 years and we just met, met and you want to put me on a train again. Mm. So there's that moment of his dad pushing him away and him saying no. So even though like we want to we want to see Abe get that speaking part, this moment here, you know, his dad wanting to put him on a train and then us transitioning to the tearful Billy Crystal saying, I'm sorry, my you know, he's not going to make it to And I know he's late and he's very sorry, but he's not going to make it. You know, he doesn't tell them that he's dead. He, um, he, he just says that he's not going to make it. And, you know, we had that transition where we realized, you know what, this son has, has followed through on what he wanted was to be there until um, his, his dad passed away. And then he has to deal with all of that now. And, you know, having been someone who was there when a parent died, like the moment of, I I can't describe what that's like, and I don't know that. I, I don't want I don't, you to get 
I don't really want to either, but <laughs> but I would tell people, and I've told people, I was like, if you have a sick period or whatever, like it, it, it'll it'll absolutely kill you, but be there because there's. Right. I don't know. There's a piece in that that I just can't. I can't really contextualize at this point. But I love how that is brought on the screen, and we—it's we, almost a joke too that A plays off like, "Man, I got it down a weekend because everybody works during the week. Nobody will come to my funeral." Yeah, you know, which is like, of course, he would worry about that, right? Yeah, like, the odds of me dying on a weekend. If I right. die during the week, no one's gonna come to my funeral because they're all working. And, and, and I thought, and I'll, I'll say, I'm like, man, movie f you for this because you played with me at this point. That it's just Joe Beth Williams, Lisa, and and Abby, Billy Crystal at, the, at this funeral, and they're just saying goodbye. And they're the only ones there, and I'm like, man, they're gonna do that. And then they absolutely just, you know, schmaltz it up Spielberg style when all these people dressed in extra outfits, you know, they're all like clowns and policemen and hospital workers and whatever, just come marching over the hill to pay last respects. That I, I teared up and just bawled at that point. But, yeah, no, I, I think you and I both bawled at that point, uh, you know, watching it at different times that um, I think, what are, what do I say? I sent you a, a message and I said, okay, I cried. I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, it, it pulls on, it pulls on your heartstrings. Um, and one thing I'm going to bring up as a technicality here for Abe and Abby is he has a right to be worried about that because they're, he's Jewish, and in Jewish faith, you have to be buried within 48 hours. Mm. So it's not like they can put him on ice and, you know, bury him a week later so that it's convenient for everybody. Um, this is like passed away on a Wednesday, buried on a Friday um, type thing. So he, you know, that's why that's where his concern stems from. Um, you know, as as ridiculous as it is, and it, it's it's wonderful and heartwarming to see everybody show up. And, and again, you both, you and I both said that we, we burst into tears. Um, I think one of the things that is wonderful about this movie is it doesn't just leave us with that sad feeling because it does pan to Abe's headstone later where it, it <laughs> where Abby's so generously put, now I feel like a putz. <laughs> well, what a perfect line, though. I mean, that's the way you would have to end this, right, at, at that point. Because it needs to end on a joke. And it ends on a joke. It starts on a joke. It ends on a joke. And, I, you know, again, I, we both have kind of gushed over it here. So this is going to be a little bit of formality. But it's time for final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Irina, what are yours for Memories of Me? Oh my gosh, everybody needs to see it. I love this movie. Um, it, it makes me happy. It makes me sad. It kind of gives me, it, it gives me all the feels. <laughs> um, I go up and down for it. And I'm not very generous with my popcorn. So um, I'm going to give this a medium popcorn with like half a small on the side, even though I love it. I know that sounds silly. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not generous with my popcorns. I love this movie. Um, but I know that not everybody will love it, even though I want everybody to see it. So now it's your turn. I will agree with one thing you said there is that this is something everybody needs to see. I think because people missed it. I think people missed this one kind of like the man missed nothing in common as well. I think this was definitely worth seeing at least once. It, it's not for everybody, and maybe it won't work for everybody, but I think there's a real inherent sweetness in this. And it, again, it's the kind of thing that you just don't get to see in movie theaters anymore. These kind of movies get made for television nowadays, mm -hmm. which, is, which is fine. It's a perfect medium for that, or they get made for Netflix or whatever. But they don't make this kind of stuff and put it in a theater anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think this is definitely worth seeing. I mean, it's on Voodoo right now. You can watch it. It's on Amazon. You, you, it's easy to find. Definitely worth seeking out at least seeing once. It's not perfect, but it's still good. And so I, I'm going to give it the large popcorn because I think it's right there with nothing in common. Again, I, I didn't know this even existed until you brought it to my attention when I said, I want to do nothing in common. What do you think? And you were like, yeah, well, you should pair it with this because when you read the plot summary of that, you – you knew that this would match well with it. And I'm glad you did because I'm glad this movie is now in my lexicon and in my eyes. And it's something I've seen because it, I like finding new things. It's rare for, to find something I haven't seen on this show as people have listened to film strip for years. know. So I'm glad I got introduced to this. I think it's worthy of the large popcorn and it's definitely a very sweet film and it's, it's not the kind of thing you see a lot of. And so 
worth seeing large popcorn for sure. Well, Irina, thanks again for joining me on the show and bringing this movie to my attention. How can folks follow you on the social media if they want to? Ooh, on the social medias, you can find me at I Sing on Twitter, E-Y-E-S-I-N-G, or follow me on Instagram at iNerd, E-Y-E dot N-E-R-D. And folks, of course, you can find archives of this podcast on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. That's where you'll find links for all the available platforms for the show. Follow the show on Twitter at FilmstripPod and search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We would appreciate it if you would share the show and leave us a positive review. We always appreciate the support. So for Irina, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.